Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Clayton Kramer assesses stand-your-ground laws. Economist Darren Asimoglu discusses why nations fail. Cato's Sally James talks about the unnecessary Export-Import Bank. Cato's Alex Narasta evaluates the idea of an immigration tariff. And Randy Barnett sizes up the legitimacy of the Affordable Care Act. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In just recent days, uh, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma said this of President Obama's military budgeting. He said President Obama's trip to Afghanistan is an attempt to shore up his national security credentials because he has spent the past three years gutting our military. We're going to discuss that and some other allegations and how the United States military budget should be affected when it comes to our nuclear arsenal. I'm talking with Ben Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute, Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Russell Rumbaugh, Director of the Stimson Center's Budgeting for Foreign Affairs and Defense Program. Gentlemen, welcome. So just to get started here, Chris, you made note of this uh, comment by Senator Inhofe, and I'm looking at a, a chart you provided as well, and it shows a dramatic increase in federal military spending and in just over the last three years sort of leveled off. And right. I, I guess this is what Senator Inhofe is talking about. Right. I mean, the, the level of kind of misinformation and just basic confusion. So the misinformation is coming from people like Senator Inhofe who claim that the defense budget has been gutted. Not even the most generous definition of gutted has occurred over the last three years. The budget has essentially leveled off and it still is at levels when you adjust for inflation well above the Cold War average and far, far higher than when we started. The the current increase kind of started back in 1998. The misinformation that's being spun out of Washington and people out in the country believe that military spending has been cut. And so a, a big part of the, the recent work is to highlight the basic facts. And the basic facts are that the, the budget has not been cut dramatically. Russell Rumbaugh, you argue that uh, even though this is relatively small, quite small in terms of cuts, the fact that the military budget hasn't been kept up with inflation, that it has been relatively flat, is meaningful. Why is that? Well, I think Chris is absolutely right. The defense budget cycles over time. In fact, one of the great things about the conversation we're having now is nobody's pretending this is only one direction. In the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, you had this idea that we were going to cut defense and it was going to stay down forever. At least we're not hearing that conversation. What we're seeing is we're seeing that inflection point. What's interesting is we've only seen that inflection point looking back. As Chris said, the rhetoric comparing it to requests, the president requests his budget. It's actually Congress who passes the budget every year. And for the last two years, the president has requested a budget that ended up $20 billion higher than the final budget that was passed. And for reasons that had nothing to do with national security and nothing to do with defense budgeting. It was, FY11 or the FY12 budget was a negotiating tactic in the continuing resolution fight of fiscal year 11. So how do we square that with uh, comments from uh, Senator Imhoff? Well, it's the typical Washington pattern, which is, you know, if you get less money than you expected to get the year before, you call it a cut. But it is ironic, isn't it, that, that Republicans who rail against this sort of thing when it's done in the domestic budget are more than happy to engage in that when it's uh, defense spending. That's completely right. Uh, only way that the current reductions in the defense budget can be considered large is A, if you count the wars which are ending, and B, if you judge them against prior plans for much bigger budgets. If you just say, well, what are they compared to what they were a couple years ago, they're down a couple percentage points because the base budget has grown just slightly slower than inflation for two years. And the Obama administration, if it has its druthers, would cut the defense budget about I believe it's 7 or 8% over the next decade, and that's from a base budget that grew by almost 50% in the prior decade. That sort of puts what's happening in scale, I think. This is from CNN Money. Mitt Romney is campaigning on a platform that emphasizes less spending, smaller deficits, and renewed fiscal responsibility. But in one budget area, Romney is running in the opposite direction. The former Massachusetts governor wants to increase defense spending by leaps and bounds by one estimate – Additional spending would exceed $2 trillion over the next decade. Chris Preble, how does Mitt Romney justify this increase and what's going to take up all that new money he wants to spend? 
Well, I think Mitt Romney justifies the increase by saying we need a strong military, ignoring, of course, the fact that we already have a strong military and we could have a strong military even if we were spending far less. When I first looked at this promise back in October of last year, the gap between what he proposed to spend and what we were likely to spend, I estimate, was about $2 billion. And now it's up over 2.5. My numbers show it over $2.5 trillion over the next 10 years. And the question then becomes, where does the extra money come from? He has not put on the table, you know, even close to anything to cover the difference and saying, well, you know, we'll grow the economy and cover the difference or we'll cut domestic spending. It's just not realistic. Now, Ben Friedman, you talk a little bit about infighting within the Pentagon, within the services. A flatline budget, you would argue, is good for that process? Yeah, the services have gotten less money and will be getting less money than they previously expected, which means their plans are even less realistic than they previously were. So they tend to have somewhat unrealistic plans for programs and and vehicles and so forth, and that they're not going to get everything they want because they're going to be, materials are under-budgeted. They're not going to get all those things in any case. But now uh, when you f- have a flat line or, or some reduction in the budgets they're planning on, more programs get into competition. So they have to make more choices. And I think that's basically a good thing because we had a period of time where it was luxury for the Pentagon because the budgets were exploding. And as the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, Mike Mullen, we lost our ability to make choices. So I think even with these minor cuts, you're seeing some good results. You're seeing the Air Force say, why do we need a nuclear bomber? Or they're sort of uh, saying, we're not going to certify it to carry nuclear weapons, our future bomber, right away, which I think is sort of an invitation to the Congress to get rid of that. And you see a lot of useful competition among programs where before everybody has sort of got what they wanted. Russell Rumbaugh. I like Ben's theory. I worry he's overstating the actual effect In the 90s, we saw a very significant build down and we never saw the services really start competing with each other. The deal that they have that protects each service pot was never actually broached. I think this time may be different. The most interesting aspect about this time to me is personnel costs. In the 90s, we significantly decreased the size of the military. It dropped by several hundred thousand people. This time, the Navy and Air Force are already smaller than they were in 2000. And while the Army and Marine Corps had grown, in the president's FY13 budget request, all of those people he's cutting, he's going to cut the total size of the Army and Marine Corps. And although the cuts will be phased in gradually, the money has been taken out of the base budget and put it in the war budget. That means the base budget, as Ben says, which is already can't support the future plans, those savings have already been taken. Will we see greater pressure this time that we didn't see in the 90s? And Chris Preble, as I understand it, Mitt Romney's plans here when we're talking about this $2.1 trillion does not include the war. Does not include the cost of the wars. He's talking about spending a minimum 4% of gross domestic product on the base budget alone. One point, I want to kind of split the difference here between Russell and Ben because I think that Russell is right that we have not seen as much competition between the services as you might expect, I think the more interesting debates and kind of fights are going to be inside of the services. So Ben mentioned the case of the bomber. There are clearly people in the Air Force that don't want to spend so much money on a nuclear, certifying a nuclear bomber as opposed to building out more fighters. In the Navy, you're going to have competition between the surface ship guys and the folks who want to build the successor to the Ohio-class submarine known as the SSBNX. I mean, some of the estimates, the cost estimates for building out this new ballistic missile submarine are so huge that if you keep them in the shipbuilding budget, which is where they should be, it is inevitable that it will compete with traditional surface ships. And I think that kind of fight is already playing out. Russell Rumble. And to emphasize Chris's point, here we have two large modernization programs that both support the nuclear mission, the next generation ballistic submarine and the next generation bomber. And yet we haven't heard either the Air Force or the Navy say, hey, a better way to deliver nuclear weapons is through submarines, not bombers, or vice versa. But as Chris says, we are seeing those effects on the two programs. In fact, uh, the head of the Air Force's nuclear command just yesterday said he doesn't think the Air Force can budget for an unmanned next generation bomber. The original plan was to do it both manned and unmanned. And he said, we can't afford to do both. We better stick with a manned. We are seeing that internal competition. We are seeing that internal prioritization. And in any case, to Ben's point, it uh makes sense that uh, your arguments for your particular project will get a lot more scrutiny if even in a 
flatline budget. Competition produces better information about alternatives like it does in markets, and it, it should ultimately produce better choices and get rid of more wasteful ones. So you get market-like effects. This is uh, from Walter Pincus in the Washington Post, uh, published uh, May 2nd. Uh, in June 1986, after a year-long investigation, President Ronald Reagan's Blue Ribbon Commission on Defense Management, later known as the Packard Commission, filed a final report. It was established to investigate Pentagon procurement after an enormous increase in defense spending and the discovery of the infamous $435 hammer and $600 toilet seat. The panel was chaired by David Packard, co-founder of Hewlett Packard. The project's declaration, the Department of Defense's acquisition system continues to take longer, cost more, and deliver fewer quantities and capabilities than originally planned. Among causes listed were stifling burdens of regulation, reporting, and oversight, a parallel report produced recently declared the Defense Department acquisition system continues to take longer, cost more, get less, and oftentimes not what is needed. So what are the things that are not needed that we're getting out of our military budget? Well, the Packard Report 25 years later remains seminal. And one of the great things about the Packard Report is it doesn't stick with just the superficial fixes, the cost estimating, the better contracting. It actually went and said, why do we keep getting these results? And unfortunately, in defense procurement, we've reached a vicious cycle. And I believe you're actually seeing that with the next generation bomber. Despite the fact that the Air Force culture is dominated by fighter pilots right now, the bomber is the Air Force's number one procurement program. The reason is it's the only procurement program moving. So any kind of advancement, any kind of stuff you want, better be on that bomber. If you want a new ISR, it better be on the bomber. If you want new stuff technology, the bomber better advance it. That creates a great deal of consensus within the service, and it also creates a irresistible requirements creep. That's what leads to cost growth. Chris Bremel. I mean, and looking at the Navy, one of my pet projects that I've been looking at over the years is the littoral combat ship. This is a case where it was a concept that was supposed to be relatively small ship, very fast, agile, and relatively inexpensive. Now it is a large vessel. It is not inexpensive. In fact, you could buy a comparable vessel, I think, uh, probably three comparable vessels for the cost of a single littoral combat ship, especially when you factor in the cost of these, what they call these modules. But most important, and I think one of the final things to keep in mind is how Congress messes all of this up. There was supposed to be a competition between two different shipbuilders for the littoral combat ship, what they call a down select. And at the last minute, in the 11th hour, Congress decided basically not to do the down select, to award a contract to both shipbuilders. The end result is two completely different ships, which is going to require a different supply chain, different training pipeline, all these different things. You don't get the economies of scale and you just keep continuing the problems we've seen in the past. I'd like to defend Congress a little bit and point out it was the Navy that proposed buying both. But I think Chris has a great example, not least of which because the Navy not only said but appeared to be doing all the right things when they embarked on the LCS program. And yet it still got bigger. It still got better. It still got more expensive. This is clearly an endemic problem to our system. This isn't something where you just dismiss waste. And I think there's a real question of whether we could get more value for our defense if we could somehow break this cycle. Ben, of course, has a suggestion. I'm just not sure we've seen the empirics for it yet. Well, let me just say one thing. First of all, the same point I made about austerity producing choices holds when it comes to this requirements creep, theoretically. So one of the reasons I think these vehicles, ships, aircraft get so uh, baroque, as former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates put it, is, is that there's an expectation that they can add, there'll be enough money to pay for at least a lot of these things. And when those expectations change, that might change. The other thing I wanted to say about the Packard report and just to sort of uh, pick on a pet peeve of mine is uh, a lot of times people will say, we wasted a lot of money on an acquisition program because it got canceled. And I think that's absolutely wrong. It would still be wasted if we hadn't canceled it. So people can't just point to canceled programs and say that's waste. So a successful, competitive, thoughtful acquisition process will lead to programs being canceled. You like to cancel them earlier on if possible and do prototyping. There's a 
tendency of people to just point at big failures and say that that means everything is screwed up. And it's not necessarily the case. So you'd prefer a higher rate of failure to get to that success quicker? Yeah. Yeah. You would like to spend less uh, to figure out that you're failing. But yeah, a higher rate of failure is, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think Apple Computer fails all the time, and so does Google in products that they come up with, for example. Right. And the psychology of sunk costs just becomes more and more important when you have invested so much time and effort and, and everything else. And you look at a program like the Joint Strike Fighter, which still hasn't delivered a functioning aircraft to the services. I wrote my first paper on the Joint Strike Fighter in 2002. I mean, this thing has been kicking around even longer than that. An alternative to that is something I've been studying as part of this nuclear weapons project that Ben and I are doing is the Polaris missile submarine, which when it was rolled out was a truly cutting edge vessel in the late 1950s. And they deployed 41 ships over a seven-year period. And these, again, these were ships that had never existed before with brand new technology. We have strayed so far away from that under the current system. If I can extend Chris's point a bit, and I'm going to steal an old professor's point who looked at the Polaris program, and one of the things he pointed out was the Polaris program never ran over cost growth, never crossed over its cost estimates. However, he points out the reason that is is because they never lowballed their cost estimates. The program had such political clout that they could ask for the money they actually thought they needed and get it. So it wasn't that they limited cost growth. It's that they were asked for more up front. To extend Chris's point about how we've gotten in this vicious cycle, and I think it relates to Ben's point about canceling, the Air Force can't afford to cancel the bomber if it's the only program moving. When it's the only program moving – more stuff is put on it, more requirements are put on it, which inflates the cost growth, which puts it more in danger of cancellation, which means they have to defend it even more. It's a scary, scary cycle we've gotten into. It's unfortunately a long time cycle. And 2054 that Norm Augustine predicted 30 years ago is coming all too soon. Just to follow up on that and also on what Chris said, it's not the psychology of sunk costs, it's the politics of sunk costs. So the, the politics that got a log roll going in the services and the politics when you start production on these things and you string jobs out all over the country, they become really hard to cancel. So that's one of the big problems is once they get going, they're real hard to stop. This is from worldpublicopinion.org. Uh, in a unique study, a representative sample of Americans were shown the size of the defense budget from different perspectives and presented with arguments that experts make for and against cutting it. Three-quarters of respondents favored cutting defense as a way to reduce the deficit, including two-thirds of Republicans as well as nine in ten Democrats. Overall, respondents composed a defense budget for 2013 significantly smaller than 2012, an average cut of 18 percent. Republicans cut an average of 12 percent, Democrats 22 percent. I remember when uh, Rand Paul had just been elected to the U.S. Senate, he said, yes, we need to compromise. We need to compromise on all sorts of things. But when you propose spending cuts to the military, that's fine. We'll take those and we'll make cuts to your preferred programs as well. That's a compromise too. That's right. We haven't seen that play out. Just yesterday, the House uh, basically tried to undo the sequestration provisions, which would cut both defense spending and uh, domestic spending. They're clearly trying to make a political point, and they're gambling that at the end of the day, people will reward them for cutting uh, other things and keeping military spending high. I guess uh, that's why we have elections, is to test that theory. Just to be clear, they could have, the House could have had additional defense cuts to undo sequestration. They don't want to cut defense at all, the Republican majority that passed that bill. So they chose to cut other programs and probably uh, to increase the deficit instead. But how relevant is it that that we have polling that indicates that Americans want to are willing to cut the defense budget. So I have to boast, uh, my team at Stimson is the one that helped support that poll. We're very proud to be a part of a very rigorous uh, process. I think the key point you see there, I said earlier, the defense budget cycles. And I believe there is a connection between the American public's desire and what happens with the defense budget. The defense budget is going down because the American public feel it's okay for it to go down. And at the end of the day, you're going to see, I hope, more members of Congress representing the wishes of their constituents going along with cutting military spending as opposed to going along with the inside the Beltway view, which is that it always should go up. We're going to leave it there. Russell Rumbaugh is director of the Stimson Center's Budgeting for Foreign Affairs and Defense Program. Ben Friedman, research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. And Chris Preble, vice president for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more about this at our website, cato.org.
Institutions, not geography, culture, or other factors, explain why some nations succeed and others fail. So says Darren Asamoglu in an ambitious new book drawing evidence from thousands of years of human history from societies as diverse as those of the Inca Empire, 17th century England, and contemporary Botswana. He delivered part of his case at the Cato Institute in April. The problems that we're addressing, as Ian has mentioned, are about the huge differences in income per capita that exist uh, around the world today. These gaps in prosperity are much wider than those that motivated Adam Smith to write The Wealth of Nations, which, of course, is where the modern uh, discipline of economics starts. And, uh, you know, when Adam Smith was writing, the gap between the richest and the poorest nation was about four or fivefold. Today, that number is over 40-fold. There are many theories about why there are such huge differences in prosperity. If you turn to the popular media or even some respectable journals such as Science or Nature, every now and then you'll see articles uh, arguing that it is such things as climate, soil quality, disease environment that accounts for why some nations are poor or some nations are rich. But actually, when you look at the evidence Geographic factors don't seem to be so important. The same countries that are very rich today were once much poorer than others with the same soil quality that, uh, that hasn't changed or with the same geographic factors. Even more popular than such geography-based explanations, uh, you would see many people argue about the importance of cultural factors. So you will hear, for example, ideas that it is the difference between Protestant or Catholic, as Max Weber argued, or perhaps between Christian or Muslim or Judeo-Christian or Muslim or Asian values, non-Asian values, or uh, the problems with uh, African attitudes to work. It is a popular explanation to try to account for the differences between North America and Latin America with sort of an Iberian culture. But, uh, but those seem to have relatively little explanatory power also. It was only about four decades ago that many scholars were talking about the deleterious effects of the Confucius values and the Chinese cultural traits that are now touted as the great foundation on which the Chinese growth experience is built. And of course, uh, what has changed dramatically since then are the economic institutions under which the majority of the Chinese are making their economic decisions. Perhaps even more popular in academic circles, certainly among many of my colleagues, would be a different theory, and perhaps uh, also very popular among journalists. And it, the, the theory would go along the following lines that, you know, what matters is enlightened leadership. And here, enlightened leadership would mean that either leaders have the right idea about what to do, or perhaps they get the right advice. And it's no surprise that this has sort of some appeal to economists, because we are in the business of trying to work out what are the good policies. And we think that we are very important, and we are so instrumental in making the right macroeconomic or the microeconomic policies. But as I will argue in a second, while economic policies, as Ian mentioned, that condemn nations to poverty abound, those wrong policies are not adopted by mistake. They are adopted often by design. It is not in the ignorance of leaders that we should look for the causes of poverty, but it is in their incentives. So our theory, as again Ian mentioned, is about institutions. It is about politics. So let me try to explain what I mean by that, and I'll try to illustrate this with a couple of examples. So by institutions, I mean the rules, formal and informal, that govern economic life. And also, I will talk about the rules and uh, regulations that are important in the political life. So it should be no surprise to many of you that there are certain sets of economic institutions, such as proper, secure property rights, contract enforcements, and so on, that create investment incentives and incentives for innovation. And equally also, economic institutions that create a level playing field so that a nation can best deploy its talent, the talent that's broadly distributed within society. To such institutions, we refer as inclusive economic institutions. Inclusive economic institutions, however, are the exception throughout history and even today throughout the world. Instead, many nations today and in the past have been ruled by what we call extractive institutions. So extractive institutions don't respect property rights, they don't create law and order, they don't create a secure contract environment, they don't reward innovation, and they certainly do not create a level playing field blocking the entry of new entrants, not pre providing opportunity to acquire education or use the talent to the vast majority of the population. And such extractive institutions do not encourage sustained economic growth. 
But these extractive institutions are not there by mistake, as I have already hinted at, and the title, the, the, the term extractive institutions already sort of gives you an idea. They are designed by the politically powerful to extract resources from the mass of society for the benefit of the few. Such extractive economic institutions are in turn sustained by extractive political institutions which concentrate political power in the hands of an elite and it is that elite which designs, maintains and benefits from these institutions. So the question is why these extractive institutions emerge and persist and that's where the politics comes in. It is the extractive political institutions that concentrate political power and the groups that monopolize political power can maintain these institutions even though they don't create incentives for economic growth. The Export-Import Bank is corporate welfare at its most basic level, and yet it has broad support among lawmakers in Washington. Sally James, a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute, made the case for ditching the XM Bank at the Cato Institute's Policy Day in May. I'm going to talk to you today about the XM Bank, which was uh, created in the 1930s to, at that point, finance exports to the Soviet Union. But like most agencies created in the New Deal era, the bank is unfortunately still with us, guaranteeing loans, providing short-term export trade finance to help American companies export. So in that way, the bank acts as an insurance, if you like, for companies doing business outside the US, helping cover bills if the foreign customers don't pay what they owe. If that all sounds like corporate welfare to you, then it's easy to surmise that the shorter version of my answer to this question is no one. But this being a Cato audience, you're probably interested in the long version. So let me go through some of the justifications uh, used by the bank supporters to make their case for continuing, if not expanded, role for the XM Bank. First of all, they say it's a money spinner. The bank supporters claim that is self-financing because the agency is funded by fees and revenues from past loans. And in fact, they claim that the Exim Bank has returned about $3.5 billion to the Treasury since 2005. I've got a couple of problems with these numbers. First of all, as many of even the bank supporters will acknowledge in different contexts, for example, when they talk about the impact of regulation, government policies don't have to show up as a line item on the federal budget to impose costs on the economy. The fact that it is quote-unquote self-financing doesn't mean it doesn't create other costs elsewhere, and I'll go over that a bit later. But second, studies have shown that these figures are spurious anyway. Exim uses certain official government accounting rules that are favourable to presenting its financial positions, which researchers have called, and I quote, an accounting illusion. If you used fair value accounting rules, it would show that the Exim actually operates at a loss if you include, as you should, the cost of market risk. In other words, these accounting rules assume that the cost of market, there's no risk at all. The subsidy, if you use those calculations, those rules, is about 1% of the funds borrowed, so about $200 billion million, excuse me, last year. And even if the bank's most ardent admirers concede that, you know, it's not, you shouldn't take the funding cup off entirely, which would be advisable. If all this stuff about it being a money spinner is true, you would think they would say, well, let's just take the cap off and fund everything. Although I shouldn't say that, it might give them ideas. The bank actually exposes taxpayers to billions of dollars of losses, I argue. Unlike Fannie and Freddie, which were only implicitly backed by the government, we saw how that worked out, Exim's taxpayer backing is explicit. Second, they say, it helps small business. Not so much, actually. The bank supporters will say that small businesses accounted for about 87% of the bank's transactions last year, which is true enough if you measure by the number of loans made. If you are measuring based on the value of the transactions, then small business accounts for less than 20% of the Exim Bank's activities. Small business in that sense is actually underrepresented by the Exim Bank. It not only does it not necessarily specially help them, it's underrepresented because small business accounts for about 32% of goods trade. Who does get the money then? Well, as this chart shows, 92%, you can just see the 92 percent, no, or over 92, about 93 percent of the bank's funds in 2010 went to pretty big business. 44 percent went to Boeing alone. Okay, you'll recognize other names in here as well, GE, uh, Caterpillar, Continental Airlines, Pemex, that's, that's a delightful one. That is the state-owned Mexican oil monopoly. <laughs> 
So they're getting a lot of money. Third, they'll say it's crucial for export success. Apparently not, because the Exim Bank finances about 2% of America's exports. So clearly it's not the uh, driving force behind exporting. And services, which are enormously important to the US economy, and in fact we have a trade surplus if you care about that sort of thing, I don't, they make up only about 7% of Exim transactions. So services which are so important actually um, are not very well supported by the bank, and yet we have no trouble exporting them. Other factors, mainly macro ones, are simply far more important to trade balances than anything the Exim Bank or any other government agent, sorry, independent agency will do. The performance of other economies is a good guide too, uh, but here's some evidence that doesn't support the bank's supporters' arguments. There seems to be an inverse relationship, if any, uh, between the extent to which exports are financed by official export credits and export growth. Fourth, they'll say it levels the playing field. This is a really interesting one, and this comes up obviously a lot in trade. This is really just kind of subsidy envy of the type David was talking about in his introduction. It's the Export-Import Bank supporters version of Billy's parents are letting him go to the party, so I should be allowed to as well. But I would pose this rhetorical question to you, and that is to what extent do we want to let the pace of subsidy growth of any, or any policy decision for that matter in other countries affect the economic policies of the United States. China might ex uh, give its companies a lot more export credit than we do. Do we want to follow them down that road? I would argue uh, no. In any effect, it's impossible for us to recreate the, uh, exactly the economic conditions in other countries. In fact, it would render trade useless if we did it. The whole point of trade is to take advantage of other countries' differences in, in resource endowments, to get markets, access to markets, and to get goods and services that otherwise would be unavailable or, or prohibitively costly for us to make ourselves. Chinese firms as well might argue that US companies have relatively, or that America provides a relatively good environment for business that they don't have. Relatively secure property rights, a relatively good legal system, all those sorts of things that help business as well. So where, how do you ever level the playing field in that sense? I argue you can't and you're just disadvantaging yourself if you try. It's also uh, important to note that the Exim Bank does a, a fair bit of uh, playing, uh, playing field interference of its own. It has all sorts of mandates for loans to uh, small business, uh, businesses headed by minorities or women, uh, for environmentally friendly goods. They specify that any export, any Exim finance transaction larger than 20 million must be transported on a US flagged ship to, uh, of course, provide a subsidy to American shippers. Fifth, the supporters argue that the Exim Bank creates jobs, 290,000 of them, in fact, is the figure that's usually used. That job creation claim is true, I guess, as far as it goes. It certainly creates jobs for government bureaucrats that work for the Exim Bank. The obvious rejoinder to this, indeed to any claim that jobs are created, is at what cost? The price immigrants pay to get to the United States is often very high. So why not turn that price into a dollar figure and let immigrants come to work, create and invest in the United States more easily? Cato policy analyst Alex Narasta floated the idea at the Cato Institute's immigration conference in April. I want to begin by saying uh, the immigration system in the United States is not broken. Uh, to be broken, the system would have to work in a way other than it is intended. But the uh, immigration system works almost exactly as it's intended, by keeping the vast majority of people who want to migrate here from doing so. If global polls are to be uh, believed, only about a fifth of people who want to move here have, including all unauthorized immigrants. Of all the people who are not legally allowed to immigrate here, only about 7% have broken the law and become unauthorized immigrants. Immigration restrictionists have the policy that they want. If only 7% of Americans broke the drug laws, America's prohibitionists would claim victory. Unrestricted immigration of peaceful and healthy people is by far the best policy option. But I'm going to offer a less positive but more practical idea that I call an immigration tariff. Uh, simply the idea is to put a price on green cards or work permits and sell them. I'm not talking about selling citizenship, just the ability to come here, work, live, invest, etc. Similar to a tariff, there should be no numerical limits on the number of immigrants, just a price that must be paid to enter. 
work, live, and legally own property here. Green cards and work permits are administratively scarce because the government says so, and not scarce in any real economic sense of the word. The advantages of a tariff are vast in comparison to the current restrictions. It would remove most of the bureaucracy, allow the supply of immigrants to meet employer demands, increase legal immigration, and convince some American voters that immigration is actually good for the United States. The quantity of immigrants could adjust to the price instead of hitting rigid quota walls. As Brian wrote in his uh, great book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, voters tend to be, uh, have a very skeptical view of economic exchanges with foreigners, especially immigrants. Making immigrants pay to be here and work will, I think, remove some of that negativity. We just heard earlier that there are uh, numerous immigration restrictions. The result of this system is uh, pretty obvious for everyone to see. Domestically, it creates an informal economy, punishes businesses and entrepreneurs, slows economic growth and economic liberty, while growing government involvement in all of our lives, especially through workplace regulations like the I-9 and E-Verify. An immigration tariff is simple to operate. The government would sell these work permits or green cards at a fixed price. The government wouldn't restrict the numbers sold, merely verify that the purchasers are not criminals, suspected criminals, terrorists, or have deadly communicable diseases, but all others should be eligible if they can pay the price. This novel approach to reform means that you don't really have to change any other laws, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, there are, I think, are uh, two different goals that an immigration tariff could meet. One of them good, one of them not so good, and they're not necessarily contradictory. The first would be to uh, try to minimize the negative political externalities of immigration. We have this large welfare state, we have a lot of uh, social services, immigrants use them at a lower rate as natives, but there's still a cost there. So although immigrants use fewer ones, those with immigrants with a less than a high school degree are still net benefit receivers. Uh, to correct for this, you could charge a higher price, a higher tariff levy when they immigrate to make up for the extra amount of social services they will receive. We could easily change other laws to deny them more government benefits. By all means, I think we should get rid of the welfare state, not just for immigrants, but for everybody. But if we can't do that, we should at least build a wall around it to deny immigrant access, both for their benefit and for ours. If we can't get rid of it, putting a higher tariff on those likely to migrate, I think, would and be on the welfare state makes a lot of sense. The second goal could be to maximize government revenue. Now, I don't like this goal, being a libertarian, very much. But uh, some bureaucrats might, and this might be an unintended consequence of it. In this case, the government could levy a higher tariff on immigrants who gain the most from coming here, probably those with skills. So uh, another question is, who's going to pay this tariff? Uh, the question is, uh, almost anybody should be able to. Up here, I have a quick list. Many of the groups up here already already pay for migrants to come to the United States, uh, legally or illegally. So it's not a stretch to think that many of them would step up and pay the fee if we introduced an immigration tariff. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking about some criticisms of this uh, right now, and I'm going to address some of those. One is that most of these migrants are poor. They can't afford to pay to come here even if there was a tariff. They're just going to keep coming through illegal channels. But I don't think that's true. And we can see why by looking at what migrants currently pay to come to the United States through smuggling. According to surveys, 80 to 93% of first-time Mexican illegal crossers during the 2000s, paid a smuggler to bring them across. During the same time, the average illegal Mexican crosser reported paying somewhere between two dollars and $3,000 to be smuggled over just the land border, and they could still be deported after arriving here. So they pay money to enter, and there's no legal security that they can stay here and continue to work. Consequently, the main effects of increased border enforcement appear to be decreased movement back and forth across the border and a lot of higher smuggling prices. Now, it's very difficult to measure prices in an informal economy, but uh, there's a great website called HavocScope.com that attempts to measure them by using anecdotes, both from government reports and from news stories. It's not perfect, but I think it gives a very good indication of this black market and what it costs to be smuggled into the United States. Coming in by boat is more common than it used to be because of strict border control on the southern border, but it is also more expensive. As you can see, the prices vary tremendously based on destination countries, routes, risk, and the distance from the United States. I want to draw your attention to the figure for China, which is $75,000 per head to smuggle into the United States. In the year 2010, 
the uh, Department of Homeland Security estimated that there were 280,000 unauthorized Chinese immigrants in the United States. A large number of them, according to surveys, paid something similar to $75,000 to be smuggled here. Now, that's a lot of money going to human smugglers that could otherwise be captured by tariffs. Immigrants are capable of paying a very high price to come here and very, very willing to do so, borrowing against their anticipated higher wages in the U.S., saving their resources before they come, pooling community resources, have already proven to work. So why not let them pay the U.S. government instead of human smugglers? Now, the benefits of paying a tariff versus coming illegally are pretty large. The wage difference between the United States and developing nations is wide enough to absorb a pretty large tariff and still incentivize legal immigration. Not only that, but immigrants will invest more in themselves and in the United States if they're allowed to stay. We saw this in the after effects of the 1986 amnesty, where the productivity of legalized immigrants shot up after they were granted legal status. Being legal increases your wages. It's worth paying to do so in most situations. As a result, all of the other good effects of immigration that accrue to Americans, such as reaping the benefits of increased entrepreneurship, economic growth, and returns to capital also increase. Security and legal certainty for immigrants is important for investing in themselves and in their businesses here. A tariff would also cut down on the, this cost, the cost of migrant deaths on the southern border, by driving many of these people who otherwise would cross the desert or stow away in cargo containers toward paying for admission. Another criticism I get about the immigration tariff is that it's unethical to charge immigrants admission. Now, I don't propose selling citizenship or the right to vote. This proposal is just about selling the ability to live, work, and invest here. And of course it's ethical. It's better than letting immigrants waste away in poor countries, forcing them into the informal economy, using smugglers, and better than making Americans break laws and risk serious legal consequences from dealing with the migrants that they want to. Also, let's not kid ourselves. There's always been a price to moving here. The biggest cost right now is waiting, sometimes decades, or not being able to come at all because there's no visa category for you. The opportunity cost in that situation is very large indeed. There even used to be a head tax on immigrants coming into Ellis Island. And then there's paying for attorney's fees, transportation, understanding forms, hiring translators, dealing with government fees and bureaucrats, smugglers, and the risk of being enslaved by them. Immigrants pay quite a bit already, especially the unauthorized ones. Why not make them pay one price to the government and then let them come? For good or ill, the shooting death of Trayvon Martin has renewed arguments over our legal right to defend ourselves and just how far that right extends. Clayton Kramer is co-author of a new report on armed self-defense called Tough Targets. He talked about the origins of stand-your-ground laws at a Cato Policy Forum in April. Well, my presentation today, uh, of course, is concerning stand-your-ground laws and why they represent a delicate balance of competing interests for justice. First of all, let me explain, Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground laws are actually a lot more closely related than many people realize. Both of them create a legal presumption in favor of a person who's using deadly force. Both substantially reduce prosecutorial discretion in deciding whether to bring a criminal charge. And both have been growing over the last 35 years for a variety of reasons, both actions of state legislatures and also actions of the courts themselves. Castle Doctrine creates a presumption that if a stranger forces entry into your home, that they intend to kill or cause great bodily injury. And uh, to my knowledge, in every American state, that is the legal requirement for justifiable homicide, that you have reason to fear being murdered or suffering great bodily injury. So these laws mean that a resident who uses deadly force against a stranger who forces entry starts out with a very strong legal advantage. A prosecutor can still pursue a criminal charge against the person who shoots an intruder, but the deck is now stacked against the prosecutor, who has to prove that the shooter knew that the intruder meant him no harm. Another way of looking at it is that Castle Doctrine stacks the deck in favor of a person who was minding his own business when a stranger forced entry. Now, closely related to stand-your-ground laws, which have at their core the idea that you have no obligation to retreat from an attacker in your home before using deadly force, is this idea of stand your ground, that even outside your home, that you should not have an obligation to go ahead and retreat. 
And this term stand your ground comes from a U.S. Supreme Court decision, Beard versus U.S. 1895, which held that a person was not required to retreat before using deadly force. Of course, this assumes that you're not the aggressor, that you were minding your own business. And of course, it also assumes you have a right to be where you were when you were attacked. Obviously, if you were trespassing or in some other way breaking the law at the time that you were attacked, you would not be in anywhere near the same situation. Where does this notion of a duty to retreat come from? At common law, you were only allowed to use deadly force, in the word of Blackstone's commentaries, for the prevention of any forcible and atrocious crime. Crimes like robbery, murder, rape, uh, breaking into a house at night. These were the cases where deadly force was allowed and was recognized as being completely acceptable. But there are circumstances that were a bit less clear, that the common law did not handle very well. What if uh, a stranger walked up to you on the street and uh, punched you in the nose and started beating on you? What if several strangers attacked you or surrounded you and started menacing you? Until 1532, uh, if you drew your knife or your sword and killed them, or just a lucky punch against an attacker caused that person's death, this was technically a crime. Your property would be confiscated, and you might well be convicted of manslaughter and punished by branding in the hand. Now, these circumstances were actually pretty common, these sudden uh, brawls and attacks. In fact, uh, medieval and Renaissance England was actually uh, worse than Detroit today in terms of the levels of violence. So your only hope if you ended up killing someone under these conditions was to beg the king for a pardon. And if you had good reason for what you had done, and uh, of course you got a lawyer to represent your case before the uh, courts of chancery, you could get that pardon, but uh, your property's gone. Obviously unjust. And so what happens is that also juries are refusing to convict. So Parliament passes a law in 1532 that uh, adds to the category of excusable homicide what they called homicide se defendendo, which is one of those horrible Latin phrases. And this was the situation where you were attacked in the course of a sudden brawl or quarrel, and you ended up killing your attacker. Now, defense was not available if you had a safe or convenient way to back away from the attack. You could not use this defense if you initiated the confrontation, or if you had a chance to stop fighting and uh, could have backed away but uh, chose not to. So the goal here is to discourage killing. Now, this was an affirmative defense, meaning that burden of proof was on the person who was using the defense. You know, the prosecutor didn't have to prove uh, anything here. You, as a, uh, the person making this defense, had to prove that you had you know, reason to be concerned. Now, stand your ground laws move the balance point of the criminal justice system. There are prosecutors who argue that these laws make it too hard to prosecute criminals who shoot people, or kill them in general. The claim is that criminals use these presumptions that are being built into these stand-your-ground laws to get away, literally, with murder. And I don't doubt that this does on occasion happen. A lot of violent crime, remember, involves criminals killing other criminals. People that are arrested for murder usually have very long rap sheets. And victims often have disproportionately long rap sheets as well. Sometimes they're completely innocent people, but sometimes they're you know, bad people killing bad people. On the plus side, it makes it harder for prosecutors to use the enormous powers that their position includes to abuse those who are engaged in lawful self-defense. And I think what we really have here is a question of balancing the interests of justice. At what point does a law give too much benefit of the doubt to a person engaged in self-defense? In states that have very little violent crime, such as where I live in Idaho, a stand-your-ground law is probably unnecessary and could even be harmful for the reasons that critics give. In states that have severe violent crime problems where people have good reason to fear being attacked on the street, stand-your-ground laws may make very good sense indeed. Now, I cringe at the abstract idea of a stand-your-ground law because it will encourage people to use deadly force. The world's full of stupid teenaged punks. I hope this is not a surprise to anyone here. They get mouthy, they get aggressive, they rely on intimidation when they aren't actually being violent. Some of them, a few days in jail, fine, might be enough to make them stop being punks. At least we can hope that. And they aren't going to get that chance if they attack someone on the street who ends up killing them. But when I look at Florida's stand-your-ground law, it doesn't worry me all that much. It seems pretty carefully drafted. Outside of your home, where does it apply? You must be in a place you have a right to be. 
You cannot be engaged in an unlawful activity. So if you're a drug dealer, you, know, you don't get the benefit of it. You are allowed to meet force with force. So roughly equivalent to what's being used against you. Someone pushes you, you can push them back. Someone pushes you, you don't shoot them. You are allowed uh, to use deadly force under a rather limited set of conditions. You have to reasonably believe to prevent death or great bodily injury to himself or herself or prevent the commission of a forcible felony. You do not get the benefit of this law if you are in the process of committing a forcible felony or trying to escape after doing so. And if you initiate the confrontation that leads to someone's death, you don't get the benefit of the law under these set of conditions. You can use it if you believe you're in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm, and you've exhausted every reasonable means to escape such danger, or you have withdrawn from physical contact and vindicated you want to stop the fight. So if you started the fight, a lot of limitations on, on, on your ability to use deadly force. So my argument is there may well be flaws in the standard ground law that Florida has and that other states have as well. But I'm not seeing any clear evidence that this is a severe problem. I'm not seeing any evidence that this is a systemic problem. There may well be cases that require some adjustments to the law. I do not see that the core of the law is fundamentally at flaw here. The Affordable Care Act, known also as Obamacare, if upheld by the Supreme Court, would hand the government broad new powers to regulate our activity and our inactivity. At a March conference on the health care law's constitutional pedigree, Cato senior fellow Randy Barnett evaluated the proper role of the court in judging the law. No matter how this case is decided, no matter how the court comes out. There's already been one claim that has been definitively refuted by the fact that the court granted six hours of oral argument spread over three days. And that is that the challenge to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, and in particular the individual mandate, is somehow frivolous or an easy case. I can just assure you that the Supreme Court does not have to dedicate three days of oral argument and six hours of argument to hear an easy case, to resolve an easy case, to dismiss a frivolous claim. But that is what 99.9% .9 of my colleague law professors were saying when these arguments were first made, when this challenge was first brought, and all the way up until today. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to say a little bit about the spin that you've been hearing, or at least many people have been hearing in the press this week, about how the conservative justices on the court must rule if they're supposed to be consistent with the rulings that they've they've made in the past, which is a complete myth in my view. But to begin with, I'm just going to summarize the case and summarize the arguments against the individual mandate. But for those of you who don't follow this case as closely as we on this panel do, let me just summarize how the argument's going to go next week. So on Monday, the court is going to hear 90 minutes of oral argument discussing the issue of the Anti-Tax Injunction Act, which is a provision of law which basically says that you can't challenge in a collection of a tax in advance of that tax's collection. You first have to pay the tax, and then you have to sue for a refund. And the question is whether that statute is provided uh, to enforce the individual mandate. On the second day, Tuesday, the court's going to hear oral argument for two hours about the constitutionality of the individual mandate. That's double the normal argument time devoted just to that single issue. On Wednesday in the morning, the court's going to hear 90 minutes worth of argument on the severability question. That is, whether if you strike down the individual mandate as unconstitutional, how much of the rest of the bill, if any, must be struck down. Some of it, the insurance company regulations, for example, or all of it. By the way, I represent the National Federation of Independent Business, the private parties that are challenging the mandate. We believe on that issue, we agree with the district court that held that if the mandate goes, the entire act must go. The government concedes that if the mandate goes, the health insurance regulations that Michael just told you about, they also have to go. And the court had to appoint an amicus uh, friend of the court to argue the position held by the 11th Circuit that the mandate can be struck down alone and the rest of the bill remains up and running. That's an argument that's going to take 90 minutes on Wednesday morning. And on Wednesday afternoon, a very important challenge to the constitutionality of the Medicaid requirements that are being imposed on the states will be heard in the afternoon for one hour. And that is the topic of this afternoon's panel here at the Cato Institute. In today's talk, I am not going to talk at all about the Anti-Injunction Act. I think some of you will be relieved to hear that. I'm not going to talk about severability unless you want to ask me about that if there's any time for questions. And I'm not going to talk about the Medicaid challenge. I'm simply going to lay out why it is at the fundamental level the individual insurance mandate that requires every person in the United States to purchase private health insurance 
is unconstitutional. Now, as you can well imagine, this is a very technical issue involving a lot of precedents, of the reasoning of a lot of cases, a lot of technical uh, text, and that's not something that can be effectively presented orally in what I probably have is about eight more minutes. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to just basically give you what I consider to be the four most salient reasons why this lawsuit, contrary to the opinions of the experts, this lawsuit did have legs, and this lawsuit is serious, and this lawsuit is going to be a very difficult one, not an easy one for the Supreme Court to decide. And I'm going to make four points that will involve four words. They'll organize around four words. The first word is unprecedented. The second word is uncabined, which is a word that lawyers like to use to say unlimited. The third word is unnecessary. And the fourth word is dangerous. Unprecedented. Well, you've heard about unprecedented. You've heard on the issue about unprecedented. This mandate, this claim of power by the United States Congress is literally without precedent. And what I mean by that, to translate this into ordinary language, is it has never been done before. That's what I mean by unprecedented. Never in the history of the United States to enforce any other law has the Congress claimed the power to require that all American citizens enter into contracts and do business with private companies. And they certainly have not claimed that under the commerce power, which is what they're doing now. So this is an unprecedented act of power. And not only, I mean, there's two ways of establishing that. One is I can ask all of you in this room to think of any other contract that the federal government requires you to enter into upon pain of a penalty payable to the IRS. None of you can think of any, nor could your parents, nor could your grandparents, because this has never been done before. And every court who has decided on this case has agreed with that. The courts that have struck the law down have said it was unprecedented, and the courts that have upheld the law have said it's unprecedented. Now, what difference does that make? It is very true, as defenders of the law say, that just because something has never been done before, that does not automatically mean it's unconstitutional. There's a first time for everything. And before Congress does something that's constitutional for the first time, uh, we have to find out if it's constitutional. So the fact that it's unprecedented doesn't automatically make it unconstitutional. But it does mean, number one, that there's no direct authority that says the Congress may do this. So that's true. Right off the bat, we're talking about a, what we call a case of first impression. And the second thing is a proposition of law that Justice Scalia observed in the Prince versus United States case, which involves the enforcement of the Brady Act. And what Justice Scalia said, and, and in that case, what, the, what Congress was trying to do was force local sheriffs to do background checks on prospective gun purchasers, even though local sheriffs work for the counties of their states. They don't work for the federal government. And that was an unprecedented claim of power as well. And what Justice Scalia said is that if for 200 years a power this attractive has gone unused by Congress, that is a pretty good argument that that power does not exist. And the same thing can be said about the individual insurance mandate. If for 230 years the Congress has gone and solved all kinds of free rider problems and all sorts of cost-shifting problems, and we've fought several major wars, and we've fought wars on poverty and wars on drugs, and we've done all of those things without having to impose an economic mandate in the past, even though that would be a very highly attractive power, rather than paying you cash for your clunkers, we could just go make you buy a new car, and then we wouldn't have to pay any money out of the public treasury. Even though that's a very attractive power, Congress has never sought to exercise it. That's a good argument, actually, for why the power probably doesn't exist. So it, there actually is a constitutional significance to the fact that this law is unprecedented. Second, the law is uncabined, or it's unlimited. So far, the government, and this has really been quite remarkable to me, in the two years in which this case has been argued and litigated, the government and its defenders have been unable to come up with a single limiting principle on the exercise of the power to impose economic mandates of the people. At oral argument in the uh, Sky 7 case in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the justices pressed the government attorney for 10 law minutes to give a single example of a mandate that the government would be unable to impose on its theory of why it can impose this mandate, and the government's attorney was unable to provide a single one. I was recently told by a reporter that in a press conference when the Justice Department was filing their briefs in this case, the reporters asked them what the limiting principle was for this power, and the Justice Department lawyers were unable to answer their questions. The reporters repeatedly asked them this question, and the Justice Department lawyers grew somewhat frustrated at the inability of the reporters to take no for an answer that we don't have an answer to the question of what the limiting principle is. It is just a fundamental principle of constitutional law that the federal government and the Congress is one of limited and enumerated powers. And unless you can state that limit, then that's likely to be a losing argument in court. 
Now, there is one thing that the defenders of the bill do say when the issue of limits come up. And the government says this in their briefs, and every defender of the bill will say this at some time or another. And that is, although I think Elizabeth doesn't actually say this, so you won't necessarily hear this from her, but every other defender of the law says this. And that is that somehow health care is different. There's something about the healthcare market, there's something about insurance, there's something that's distinctive about this particular thing, and for that reason, that distinguishes this from everything else. And whenever you hear anybody say that, what you have to remember is that even if that's true, and by the way, it's not, but even if it were true, that would not provide a constitutional argument. It would not provide a constitutional limit. That is, the response to that is, okay, fine, healthcare is different. Now, what's your constitutional limit on the imposition of this power? And why is that? Well, because the court is, is simply not the next time an economic mandate is being used by Congress going to have a fact-based inquiry in which they decide whether the next act of imposing an economic mandate is like this one, whether the next market is going to be sufficiently similar to the healthcare market in order to um, justify an economic mandate in the next case. And that's because the Supreme Court just doesn't get into factual inquiries like that. And they won't in the future. So this is just a smokescreen for having no limiting principle at all. And if you don't have any limiting principle, then that means that upholding the mandate is going to pose a serious threat. In fact, it's going to end the system of limited and enumerated powers that we've lived with in this country since the founding. The third uh, reason why there's a problem with this law is that it's unnecessary. Congress had powers that it could have used to accomplish very nearly what it was trying to accomplish here. Not the same way. They didn't just have to change the name here or there. But they really did have powers, very powerful ones, the ones they always use to subsidize activities that they don't have the power directly to command. And that is their taxing and spending power. And yet they chose not to use those powers. And why is that? Well, we know why that is. It was political, which is exactly the constraint that exists on the taxing power. And that is the president ran for office saying that he would not raise taxes on people making less than $200,000. The Democrats in the Senate, the 60 Democrats in the Senate, were not prepared to support any kind of tax increase. And as a result, they didn't use the power that they had for strictly political reasons to accomplish what they say they want to accomplish with this bill. Because it's unnecessary, it is simply not a justification. In other words, it is not a justification that you have to use this mandate because it's the only means that's necessary when Congress had the power that they could have exercised to solve this problem, and yet they chose not to. However, had they done that, it would have been a whole lot better than the power they're now trying to claim, which brings me to my final point, that this particular power is dangerous. And why is that? Because when Congress tries to incentivize Americans to do what they want them to do, but they don't have the power to command them to do, the only consequence of Americans not doing what Congress wants them to do is they have to forgo some kind of financial benefit. If you don't want to trade your clunker in, you have to forgo the $5,000 they were willing to pay you in order to destroy that perfectly good car and drive uh, business to the American car companies. And so that's what you have to give up. However, if this individual mandate is upheld as constitutional, even though in this case it's only being enforced by a monetary penalty, in the future, in the future, it could be enforced by the full panoply of enforcement mechanisms that are typically and historically used to enforce the Commerce Clause, up to and including imprisonment. So this mandate may seem innocuous, but the next mandate doesn't have to be, and that's why this power is a lot more dangerous than the tax power would be. Now let me conclude just by talking a little bit about the spin that you've been hearing lately, at least in the last week, about why certain conservative justices have to vote to uphold the mandate or they would be contradicting themselves. The first one, which is the most ludicrous, has to do with Chief Justice Roberts, who has said has to uphold the mandate because he signed on to an interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause in a case called United States versus Comstock, which involved a sexual predators law that empowered the federal prison system to hold on to people who had been adjudicated as sexually dangerous beyond their prison sentences. And the question is, could Congress do that under its Necessary and Proper Clause? Well, in the Comstock opinion, there is narrowing language. There is narrowing language that says Comstock, the law in Comstock is actually a very modest addition to existing federal power. It is an area that the federal government has occupied for a very long time. And there's a state opt-out. For any state that wants to reclaim their own prisoners, they're free to do so, so it accommodates federalism. And that's the opinion that Chief Justice Roberts signed on to. But notice this about the Comstock opinion. It had limits built into its text, the ones I just told you about. But if you hear constitutional law experts talk about Comstock now, they don't care about those limits, what was written into that opinion. They just say, oh, Congress can do anything under the Necessary and Proper Clause now. Read Comstock. 
That's what's going to happen if, they, if the Supreme Court tries to limit this power by the use of some sort of, some sort of textual limits like health care is different. Now, the final example I'm going to give is the one about Justice Scalia, who wrote a concurring opinion in the case that I brought to the Supreme Court, the Rage case involving medical marijuana. I must tell you, I was very disappointed in Justice Scalia's vote. I was disappointed in his opinion. But in his opinion, which he concurred with the majority written by Justice Stevens, Justice Scalia relied on the necessary and proper clause. And what is said is, because Justice Scalia said in that case, because the reaching of my client's marijuana that was being grown for her by caregivers privately and not commercially, because it was essential to the broader prohibition of interstate marijuana that they be able to reach that intrastate non-economic activity, therefore it was constitutional. Let me say that again. What Justice Scalia held was it was okay to reach my client's marijuana because it was essential to a broader regulation of interstate commerce, which was the prohibition of interstate marijuana. I could say a lot more about what that means, but I'm going to just, because I've run out of time, I'm just going to say one thing about that opinion by Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia's opinion, which was expressly about the necessary and proper clause, was only about the word necessary in the necessary and proper clause. The issue was whether essential to a broader regulatory scheme would be interpreted in the same deferential way as the word necessary has been interpreted in the past by the Supreme Court, meaning Congress basically has discretion when it chooses means amongst the various means that might be convenient to its end. And Justice Scalia basically adopted that approach, much to our disappointment. But here's what that opinion said not one word about. It said not one word about the word proper in the Necessary and Proper Clause, which said, and the Necessary and Proper Clause says that Congress shall have power to make laws which shall be necessary and proper to carry into execution its foregoing powers. There's nothing in the Rage case about the word proper. And yet it is Justice Scalia himself in the Prince case who said that the unprecedented imposition of a power to coerce local sheriffs to enforce federal law in the Brady Act by making them run gun checks, he said that was beyond the power of Congress's commerce power to enact. And he said he called the necessary and proper clause that was being offered to defend that power the last refuge of those who would defend the ultra-virus powers of Congress. And to that argument, he said, while that law may be necessary, it is not a proper exercise of power. So if there's any justice on the Supreme Court that will be very capable of distinguishing his concurring opinion in Rage from this case, it's the justice that has made the greatest use of the distinction between necessary and proper. And how will he do that? Because an individual mandate to make every man, woman, and child do business with a private company at the whim of Congress, just because Congress thinks it's convenient to its regulation of interstate commerce, is not only unnecessary, as I've explained, it is also highly improper, and for that reason, it is unconstitutional. This year's Cato University will be held in Washington, D.C. This premier educational program features lectures from outstanding scholars such as Tom Palmer, Cato Chairman Robert Levy, and University of Rochester Professor of Economics Stephen Landsberg, as well as a special evening event on Capitol Hill with Senator Rand Paul. For more information and to register, visit cato.org slash Cato University. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.